Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But before all that, um, I want to talk about Henry Searle because, I mean, I don't like to overhype boys' champions because the boys' uh, Grand Slam scene is generally less um, indicative of success in the pro game than the girls' game because at 15, you're basically a fully formed tall pro. And also because George famously made one of the worst calls of all time um, when he predicted (laughs) that 2018 uh, Wimbledon boys' champion sang would go on and become the GOAT. He's currently 306 <laughs> in the world, George. Just He has been as high as 83, but still think Oof. that's probably a poor I'm surprised he's been you. that high, to be honest. Yeah. Um, Henry Searle was the third British boys finalist in the last 12 years. Liam Brody, Jack Draper, and him. Uh, what they all have in common is they're all left-handed. What they don't all have in common is that Searle won the title. First man in 60... Boy, I should say, in 61 years from Britain to win the Wimbledon boys' title. Stanley Matthews Jr., which is not a story I knew about. Yes, son of the famous footballer, also won the Wimbledon boys' title back in the day in 1961, uh, 1962, I should say, 61 years ago. Um, Calvin, obviously, just, just talk me through a bit. Stanley Matthews Jr.'s career, I assume you saw him play a few times. Um, <laughs> a couple of years before me. A couple yeah, of years yeah. before me. Um, no, never, but never went beyond the second round of a slam. So let's hope it doesn't go that way for Henry. Well, quite. Um, but Calvin, you will have kind of come across Henry Searle. I actually watched a bit of him at the French Open because he, him, and Hannah Klugman were playing at the same time on courts that back onto each other. So I was switching between the two British juniors. I mean, I, I can't say I've heard a huge amount of hype about Henry Searle. Um, no, there's not been loads of hype. I mean, people in you know tennis in Britain know him. He's a good mm. player. Um, good player, good serve, big serve, big forehand, lefty, good attitude, competitive, works Huge, hard. huge. I mean, he hit a one three four. Yeah, yeah, he's a big lad, can hit a big serve. Um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how he develops. Um, well, so, so that's what I, my follow-up question was going to be, because you, you've worked with high-ranked juniors before. Um, what are the key factors in like going from a very good junior boy to a, you know, converting to a good pro? Um, physicality is a big one. Physicality is a huge one, and you know it depends really. Because I mean, Henry, I think he's seventeen. Is mm-hmm. he? Yeah. Um, you know, it's. I don't mean to pour cold water on it on it at all, but it's. Um, you know, Calcaraz was winning major tournaments when he was a year older. Yeah, and I don't think Henry's winning two fifties in the next mm-hmm. year. Mm. You know, so um, I don't think he's winning a slam in two years, but 
it's yeah it's physicality you know you've got to be fit. the men's game is so tough to break through now because of, because of the physicality of it um that you know they're, they're going up against huge guys huge hitters and you've got to put the hours in you've got to you got to get on the road you've got to spend weeks and months away from home uh, and compete and that's where you learn your trade and some players make it and some don't some th- fall through the wayside players who you're absolutely certain when you've got someone like that who maybe isn't like tour ready you know oven ready to quote boris johnson at the age of 17 um <laughs> and and you know i know there is a big push at the moment in british tennis for kids to go over to america and spend three or four years at college is he the sort of archetype of a player who who could do with a couple of years on the college circuit and that kind of thing or, or actually is he better you know turning over uh, even playing another year of juniors and then turning over and grinding 25ks and and going up that way or or is it horses for courses i mean i think that we've got i think in the uk we've gone too too heavy on sending everybody to college it's become like a bit trendy now to go are they going to send best best route is the college route best route mm. is the college route the main reason why you would send someone to college the two reasons why why somebody would generally want to go to college is if they haven't developed physically yet for the men's game, if they if they're not quite if they're they're just too too weak physically to play the men's game, mm. or if they haven't had the number of matches and they need to mature in a match from a match play perspective. From what I've seen of Henry Searle, I don't think either of those would apply to him. Right. So I wouldn't be looking to go to American Uni if I was him. I'd be looking if he wants to be a tennis player. Like if you've won junior Wimbledon, if you're the junior ranking that he is, then you ought to be ready to go on to the men's futures tour. And I think he'd get more from playing. Again, another reason why you go to America is, is you probably couldn't afford a program, a full-time program at that age, but he'll get PSP. He'll get full funding now if he wants to from the LTA. Yeah. So he can have his own coach. He can play, Futures year round. I don't see what do, going to college would give him, yeah. other than delaying his career for two years. And but I get the feeling because this is what we tend to do now, and it's a real criticism. It's the main criticism I have with the performance department of the LTA is that they've kind of franchised out their performance department for eighteen to twenty-one year olds to American Uni, and mm. just saying everybody should go to American Uni. And I think yeah. that's a bit of a cop out, if I'm honest. Uh, just mention the coaching. Morgan Phillips has been his coach for the last sort of year and a bit because Henry's at the Loughborough Academy. I know you hold Morgan in quite high regard, Calvin, which is not something we can say about many coaches these days. Um, <laughs> much these days, I never have. <laughs> but but obviously, if he were to turn over and go go pro, turnover is a boxing phrase. I apologise for using it. Um, it. He would probably not work with Morgan because Morgan has a full-time job like running the academy so would have to go and work with someone else which which maybe is a reason to maybe spend another is it remotely worth him playing juniors for another six eight twelve months um no I would say not I would say he's probably now you know you've kind of done all you can do in that yeah. you might want to go US Open mm. you know, it's always nice to win a US Open juniors isn't it yeah um so I might want to do that um but I think he probably now Goes and plays, um, goes and plays a full future schedule, 15s and 25Ks. Um, yeah. That's what I imagine. And, you know, if they need someone who's experienced with tall left-handers on the future schedule, then I know a coach. 
I already have a, I already have a job working with a tall left hander, <laughs> George, and uh, and, uh, and a tall right hander as well. Yeah. But no, I mean, I, I I I don't. I mean, I'm interested to see where that develops because I I do think that that there'll be some I do think there'll be some cop out and it'll be he needs to go to American Uni, and that's not something that I would think is a. I, I'm not saying it's a bad move. Yeah, don't see the point. Just not an automatic. Yeah, yeah. I just don't see like, and and it is something we've done. Like we did. The problem is that we didn't. There was a there was a stigma in British tennis for a while where the best players weren't going to American unis. And you've got to remember as well when we have this thing about they should go to American uni, right? American unis are the same in terms of tennis and sport as educational unis are anywhere in the world. There's there's really good ones and there's really shit ones. Mm. Like you wouldn't go. Somebody said like. You know, say you were in America and you were going, oh, I'm going to go and study, um, going to go and study English, you know, or the, the arts or something, or English literature or the classics, and you go and where are you going? Oh, I'm going to go to to England. You'd automatically think, oh, it's maybe Oxford or Durham or somewhere. Mm. You could end up at Huddersfield or Hull. Mm. You know, and it's like there's not all the universities in America are not great. And I'll be honest with you, 95% of the coaches in American unis are absolutely crap. Mm. There's some very good ones. There's some very good ones, but you've got to get to one of those. Mm. And, and you know, most of the British, the, the the top British guys, they go to the ones with the good coaches. But this idea of we're going to send everybody who's any good to American Uni, I think no. At some stage, you've got to get an actual program in this country. You've got to get a program and sort something out for eighteen to twenty-one year olds who can play, instead of just going, we're sending you to America. I I wouldn't be uh, dumping his coach anytime soon in a more light-hearted point he's a he's a rare person whose first and surnames uh if you put captain in front of them they're famous captains well that's <laughs> definitely how you definitely how you should choose a coach <laughs> how george how long have you had that in the locker? i've been trying to come in for ages and then it were like moving further and further away i was like oh calvin's making all these Desperate serious points and he's got this great gag but i hope it was worth the wait everyone <sighs> It definitely wasn't. Um, let, let's use that as a springboard to move <laughs> frantically and desperately onwards um, and pick ourselves up again with the men's final. Carlos Alcaraz, who won 1-6-7-6-6-1-3-6-6-4. He, he ended some great streaks. Um, the first player to beat Novak Djokovic on centre court for 10 years, three hours and about 30 minutes. Um, the first player to win a tiebreak against Novak Djokovic in 15 attempts in Grand Slams this year, Enzo Quacao and Carlos Alcaraz now in a two-man club of 2023 Grand Slam tiebreak winners against Novak Djokovic. And then he won a deciding fifth set. And not many people do that against Novak Djokovic. Um, he was a 37% underdog with the bookies as he started that fifth set. Uh, he broke early and then nervously served out the match. Um, two of the points of the tournament in here as well. Uh, in the third game, for example, and then when when Alcaraz broke, uh, and George, we saw Novak Djokovic lose his cool, which we don't see hugely often. Um, he fell over midpoint, got himself back into the point, got on top in the point actually, and then was passed at the net, and then in revenge against the net, smashed his racket around the net post. Um, there is a, a large indent on the net post, but I am reliably informed they're not going to replace it. They, they will use that net post again next year, I'm told. Um, but that's just a little little cuisson of, um, of uh, information for you. George, in a, in a wider point, Alcaraz got under his skin, didn't it? Or is that just losing? 
<laughs> I, I actually think you'll just be really pissed off at how shit the approach shot was. Like it always <laughs> looked, it always looks good when a player hits a passing shot like that, but it barely went beyond the service line from Djokovic right mm. into his wheelhouse, sort of caught in no man's land. It was quite an easy shot for Alcaraz to make, and I thought that that was kind of a a bit of a running theme for Djokovic at points in in that match that in a similar way to which Federer against Djokovic a few years ago wasn't quite going for lines in in big moments um he he was a little bit he was caught out a couple of times kind of coming in there was a break point earlier in the match that actually wasn't a terrible serve to be fair to know that that one and it was a, a much better passing shot but there were a couple of other times where it just felt like he was he was coming in for the sake of it not not giving the approach the welly it needed or giving his opponent the respect he deserved really for he's actually going to make those shots. The pressure's not feeling him out that way. Um, and, and Alcaraz passed him in, in a similar way. Djokovic would do that to other people. And, and we look at it and we think, well, oh, God, that's amazing from Djokovic in that moment to do it. But actually breaking the shot down a lot of the time, it, it shots Novak Djokovic will make 99 times out of 100. And Alcaraz is a similar ilk. And, you know, I, I, it's a funny match to reflect on as a whole. I kind of feel that Djokovic should have won it in straight sets, which is probably going to sound like a bit of a weird thing to say, but that, that second set tiebreak was completely on his racket. And he, whether it was the the umpire intervention or whether it was just a lack of concentration, there were some really uncharacteristic misses from Djokovic within that tiebreak. And I think if he gets that, he probably steamrolls through. He just allowed Alcaraz back in the match. It's not often you kind of think about that from Novak, where he's got his foot on the throat and he's not killed him. He's not he's not put him to bed. And you know, Alcaraz credit to him. You know, particularly what happened kind of mentally a month ago at the French Open to kind of come back and play that sort of match. But he he's a wonderful, wonderful talent. And if you allow him to feel his way into a match, it's always going to be a fifty fifty match, which is what this was in the end you know there's so few points in it um so yeah i think novak will have a lot of regrets about this one as he alluded to it as post-patch speech uh yeah calvin i was going to ask you about the time violation at, at four five in the second set breaker i mean it, i've never seen a time violation cheered quite like it um Djokovic was in full nervous ball bounce mode i mean it's not it's, it's just it's a bit like the hindrance call really it's a bit clear cut isn't it I mean, the, the hindrance thing I didn't think was clear cut. I know you did. Uh, you both, you guys did. I thought that was a bit. I thought, I thought it was just silly from both Djokovic and the umpire. To be honest, I thought mm. like there was a better. It was pathetic from Djokovic because he was definitely. I think he thought he'd hit a winner. I, I don't think he on the on the hindrance call. I think he thought he'd hit a winner. I don't think he was trying to put the other guy off. But it was also ridiculous to, to grunt that late. But also the umpire, you know, he wasn't hindered because he made a really good shot in the. In the next shot, but anyway, that, that's by the by. Time violation was 100% deserved. Like, he can't be doing it. He needs calling. He needs calling out on it. But, mm. I mean, the, the time violation rule is just ridiculous as well. You should lose your first serve straight away. Yeah. Like that. 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 There has to be a punishment for. It, it, you're you're breaking the rule. One of the rules of tennis is that you have 20 seconds between points, and he's not. He's breaking the rule. So you should lose your first serve there. And also, you should get the time violation on the second serve as well. Like he's just he's bouncing the ball forever between serves, and he's not doing it by accident. He's doing it. He's, the reason he's doing it, he knows that it builds pressure on the opponents. 
he's putting them off and that kind of thing. But I, I know it's like a few things, few sort of musings, I suppose, I had about the final was like the first one was it's mad that this is now grass court tennis when mm. you watched the match yesterday. It's, mm. it's just not, it's completely unrecognizable from, from 15 years ago. And I don't just mean obviously like, you know, sport moves on as that, but I think we really need to have a look at that because we already have a clay court, clay court slam and two hard court slams. And that's basically another hard court slam. What you're watching. You know, there's a hard court match. What you were watching yesterday, apart from a few slips from both players, that you would not have known that that wasn't a hard-court match yesterday. And that's not really what we're supposed to be doing with this slam. Um, a, a, couple of, a couple of the things. Um, I, I, people are messaging me throughout the match, and, and I've seen a few other people like on social, on, on Twitter, saying, like, is there a bigger... Is there a bigger falsehood in sport than? And I've seen this. I must have seen forty people say this, or heard it, or seen it said, or people text me going, "You don't often see Novak this rattled, like <laughs> all the time. Yeah, Every good. time he's losing, he's that rattled. He got he got kicked out of the U.S. Open two years ago for whacking a ball at a, an umpire. He was crying in the final of the U.S. Open two years ago. Like he gets rattled all the time." Yeah, it's like whenever he's behind, he gets rattled. But like you know, it's like oh, I've never seen. Doesn't normally get this rattled. He's one of the most. He's one of the most unstable people on the planet. <laughs> like, <he's> completely unstable. <laughs> but um, but also another thing, another another sort of thing that cracks me up is like, uh, listen, right? Novak Djokovic, I think he's probably the best tennis player that's ever lived. He's the mm-hmm. best match player that's ever lived. I'm certain of that. Again, in any sport. Um, I can't speak highly enough of his tennis, right? But this sort of idea that he's some sort of superhuman has kind of gone to another level now where everything he does is seen as like it's part of it, that he's running some sort of mind games. And he does try certain mind games. But I saw a, a coach who I respect hugely. Uh, I've got a lot of time for this coach. And he tweeted yesterday that... Said, I don't know where it was. Some, some of you guys might see me, but he tweeted saying um, most of the players, when they lose a 24-minute game to go a double break down, would go to pieces or something. I think Novak Djokovic now has Alcaraz just where he wants him. And I'm like, come on, man. Like, nobody, nobody wants to go two breaks down. Like, why, when would being two breaks down be wherever, where, exactly where you want them? That's that's well, surely like, up there with like two 0 being the most dangerous scoreline in football. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's it. But it's like you know, and it's all the time. It's like you know this idea, and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why Alcaraz beat him yesterday, right? And why I'll tell you the re- it's the same reason as why Holger Rune has beat him both times that they've played. It's belief. They <laughs> they believe they go out mm. and they believe that they're going to beat him. Holger Rune, I criticize Holger Rune all the time. I think he's a bit of a bell. Right, but his self-belief is phenomenal. Carlos Alcaraz, you can see it. Even when he was lost the first set six-one, he didn't panic. There was no no panic button hitting or anything. He knew this is a five-set match. He's been a set down before. He's lost sets. He's beaten Djokovic before. I thought, right, just bring it. I can win three sets here. If he'd have lost the second set, it'd have been exactly the same. And it's belief, and that's the only difference between that first set. That's the difference between guys between Alcaraz. He's a, he's a hell of a tennis player as well, as is Olga Rune. 
But that's the difference why certain players don't beat Novak Djokovic. The reason why Federer didn't beat him in that last final, didn't believe he was going to win. It's the reason why Nadal actually does beat him. He thinks he can beat him. Mm. And that, that's that's what it comes down to. That's what sport comes down to. I say all the time, there's two, there's two things that matter in sport. Are you good enough and do you believe you're good enough? And if you've got both... Then you, you, if you got both, then you, you're going to win matches. If you're just good enough but you don't believe you're good enough, it's useless. And if you're not good enough, and you but you believe you are, you won't win most matches, but you bluff your way to a few. And Alcaraz has got both. He's good enough, and he believes he's good enough. George, you asked to come in a while ago, and I was I was Did letting I? you God, jump in. So I lost my way. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, I, I completely agree with what Calvin's saying there. I mean. I, it's interesting, I think, to think about where Djokovic now goes from here. I think we've all been saying we expect Alcaraz to kind of surpass him within the next 18 months from a, you know, he's 36, he's waning, or he's, he's bound to wane physically and Alcaraz is only going to get stronger. I, I'm kind of shocked this has happened right now, though, on the grass when we're talking about someone who's wasn't that good on this episode. I know Calvin is saying it's not like grass, a hard though, court. George. Yeah, I know, but, I know. But, yes, but there's still a little grass. bit of the movement where, you know... There is a degree to that, and Novak did say that himself, didn't he? He's like, I don't, I didn't think I had to worry about you <laughs> on a grass court before. Now, how, how much does this worry Novak now? Is, is is this the point, kind of where Djokovic beat Roddick years ago, where it's sort of like, oh man, I actually cannot beat this guy. He's got to get too much stronger. I'm going to get weaker. Or are we kind of still expecting Novak to hang around for another eighteen months, a few more kind of classic finals, and then not be competitive. Well, I think the interesting thing to consider is that Djokovic has never beaten Alcaraz. I know he beat him in Roland Garros, but he didn't beat him. Like, in tennis terms, in pure tennis terms, and I, I know people will nitpick with this and think that I'm nitpicking, but I don't think that is, like, a true, like, tennis versus tennis. Like, I, I see what happened to Alcaraz, and I go, all right, well, that happened. But I think in true tennis terms, he didn't beat him there, Calvin. I, I... I mean, there are a couple of things on that. That I, that I think the key for the match, two keys for the match, uh, from tactically, just tennis point of view, was Alcaraz served rubbish in the first set. Mm. He started serving better in the second set. That was the main difference. Um, secondly, as the, for the whole match, I don't know what the actual stats were, but it felt that every time the rallies went above four shots, it felt like Alcaraz just won so many of them. Mm. And their job, which is wheelhouse, you know, like just, just grinding... What he does is he basically runs you. He's going to run you. He runs you side to side and kind of holds the ball on the racket and moves it. He never lets people set in the middle, never lets them control the middle. But Alcaraz just seemed to win so many of them, and especially all the big points. Any Anything that was 30-all or break point either way, he just seemed to win so many of the long rallies. I mean, I'll tell you something that I'm quite sure right now. There was talk of, after the French, there was talk of that Djokovic would get to 28. He ain't winning five more slams. I can say that with 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 a very a lot of confidence. Djokovic not winning five more when Alcaraz is around. Yeah, I I, I have to agree. I think we're talking two or three max, and, and that is a max. I think Alcaraz could just fly off now. I mean, I think there's such a massive match. Uh, the, the other thing I was going to say tactically, which really interested me, particularly as before the final, I'd sort of said, oh, I thought the big difference between them, particularly on the grass, even if we're not saying it is grass or whatever would be the serve. And I have to say, I was shocked how good Alcaraz's second serve was in the kind of third, fourth and fifth sets. It just felt to me he was hitting spots 
with pace. He hit a few second serve aces, but the consistency and he was going big. There were so many like plus one one two second serve shots from him that I I was really impressed because I, I kind of felt that wasn't an amazing shot from him before, and maybe I've just been downplaying that a bit. But I felt you can get at his serve, but he sort of reminded me a little bit of when Medvedev kind of went a bit mad against Novak and just had a serving day of his life in wherever that was Cincinnati. But I was I thought tactically that was quite a big neutralizing weapon that he could kind of have the best returner in the world and cause him a lot of problems even on second serves. Calvin, what do you think? Do you think the second serve is a new Alcaraz development? Um I think he had to his second serve had to be good. And I think he knew that. But again, it's that comes to belief. Again, second serve's a lot about belief. You start thinking every time you miss first serve, oh no, I'm in trouble here. I'm in trouble here. I've got to win this point. But nothing bothers him. Because he has very much the mentality of be nice to make a first serve, but if it doesn't, I'll just beat him off the ground anyway. Mm-hmm. Um I'll tell you what it was yesterday, and not many people spoke about this. There was some absolutely shocking volleying on display. Both ways. <laughs> like, is and terrible not, at times. Yeah, and not not just missing volleys, just not putting volleys away. Just really, I mean, I don't. Djokovic's not a great volleyer anyway. Alcaraz, I think there's some talk that Alcaraz is the best volleyer on the tour. He's yeah, he's his volleys all right. It's not that good. There's 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 thirty better volleyers than him in the top one hundred. Um, but you know he's good. What what people think with volleys like the one he won in the last game when he was on the stretch. That's not really great volleying that. That's great athleticism. There were a few volleys that... And the ones he missed, he missed some that I think we just concentrate. Like the put-away volleys, he missed a couple of them. Um, but it's the kind of semi-tricky volleys that you don't really know what to do with. The kind of like knee-height volleys that neither of them were very good at. Djokovic made some really bad ones. Like where he just, he just didn't... Like, you know, he... Hard to imagine like peak Murray not putting them away, or the better volleyers on the tour, Dimitrov, who I think is a very good volleyer, would put them away. Nadal was a, is is a very good volleyer. He put that he he's getting those put away, and Djokovic just doesn't. He's he's not a great volleyer, to be fair. The the other shot that was awry quite a lot in the match, even though everyone will remember the one that Alcaraz nailed in the final game and then lobbed Djokovic, which I've not seen many players do that to him mm. <laughs> in 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 many years. But um, I thought the drop, the, both were pretty poor on the drop shots on the whole. Like there were quite a lot of bad misses from both of them. When you know, particularly Alcaraz has kind of become to known as this amazing drop shotter, and you know, in comms they were saying a few times or. Oh, that's just poor shot choice from Alcaraz. You know, he's that's that's just being in the final. You know, feeling the nerves. I'm like, you clearly aren't watching this bloke every week. He normally nails those left, right, and centre. Well, it's the, it's the classic <laughs> British. It's the classic British tennis commentary thing, though. Whenever anyone makes a drop shot winner, they rave about how brilliant it was. Whenever they miss it, it's what a terrible decision it was. Like, and it can, <laughs> it can often be like a millimeter away either way. It's like, you know, drop shots just so frowned upon in British com- British tennis commentary um, that. I actually, the, the key, the big moments, he, he drop shot well. Although I found it bizarre towards the end of the match, Djokovic just didn't chase them. You know, and they weren't great drop shots. Yeah. Like, you know, I think he'd have, he could have got a racket on them, but he just, just bag chased. There's one on a break point, I think. The break point up. Mm. And he just, he just, Alcaraz didn't, you know, it's quite a good drop shot. Djokovic just, just bagged it, didn't chase it all. Indeed. Um, we're running out of time. Uh, so I've got two short answer questions for both of you, which is you have to 
uh, and this is the, probably the most reductive thing I've ever come up with. <laughs> you have to um, rate the tournament out of 10. Oh. Yeah, yeah, I told you it was reductive, George. Uh, and you have to pick a US Open winner uh, based on what all the evidence you have before you at present uh, in the men's and the women's. Um, George looks like he's struggling the most with it, so I'm going to put him on the spot first. <laughs> Classic. Uh, well, I mean, there's a saying in sport that you're only as good as your last match, and this Wimbledon will be remembered throughout the years because of that last match. So from that perspective, it's automatically an eight or higher for me. I don't think it was an amazing tournament on the whole, but that match, I will never forget it. And most people won't forget it. It was the best match I've seen in the men's game since probably Djokovic, Nadal, Wimbledon semi-final in 2018. So, you know, for me, the standout matches make the best tournaments. I don't sit around remembering tournaments. I remember big, big matches that make a tournament memorable. So for me, I'll, I'll be weirdly positive and call it a nine because it was a brilliant match and that drags it up. Uh, and you have to pick your winners as well. Oh, winners. Uh, it's funny. I can't, part of me wants to think Novak's going to bounce back and make it interesting, but I, I just don't think the US is the tournament for him to do that. I actually think he can lose to Medvedev there as well if he falls on his side. Like That's not a good matchup for him there, so that would be quite interesting if he ends up on Novak's side as well. So I, I think Alcaraz probably wins that as well. And then I think Spiontek probably. Oh, wow. So you've picked the two world number ones. Correct. What, <laughs> what a sensational pick from George Belshaw there. Um, uh, uh, to give you a bit more time, Calvin, i give you mine. Um, I'm going to give the tournament a six and a half out of ten. Um, I think basically there's been a few good women's matches. I think the men's by the final has been okay. Um and the scheduling's been crap and the weather's been rubbish and I appreciate there's nothing they can do about that but it doesn't change the truth um, and then um, the winners I'm going to pick Carlos Alcaraz who you've heard of and then in the women's I'm going to go pin sticking and I'm going to pick oh there are some people I'd like to pick Belinda Bencic there you go there's my rogue pin stick. I mean, George, is the WC... to, what's he to win? The Am US Open. Oh, the really? US <laughs> Open. That's terrible, Cole James. That's absolutely. <laughs> she, she, had match, she had match points against Iga Shrontek. She had absolutely. match points one of, against one of the, the worst calls I've heard. <laughs> one of the worst calls I've heard since somebody claimed they've been, been five-one down in the third. It's a great position. To <laughs> right. Move on to our last contender, Calvin. You, um, give us your rating for the tournament. You tournament, I think, yeah, tournament, um, don't, don't really, not a big Wimbledon fan. Food's good there, but other than that, not much. Um, I think it was, the final was good, but it was because, like I said, because it was two stars. I didn't actually think the standard of the match was, was that great, to be honest. I thought Alcaraz played quite well. I thought Djokovic played pretty average for himself, and it just happened to go five sets. Um, I think it was one of those, if it wasn't five sets, which it could easily be if, if Alcaraz had won it in four. I don't think would have been calling it, you know, such a great match. But um, I'm going to say it was. I'm going to say it was a, a five and a half as a whole the tournament. But I'll give the final uh, an eight and a half. Mm. Um, I thought it was it was just it was inter interesting to me. Like I say, when I saw that how how much it interested the public. Yeah. Um, so and I was happy to see that from tennis. Um, yeah. 
I think Medvedev will win the U.S. Open. Mm. I like that. I, th- I, th- I could see someone like Sinner beating Alcaraz there. Um, I don't think Medvedev will beat Alcaraz. I think that's a terrible matchup. But I could see someone else beating Alcaraz. Um, Sinner or Rune or someone like that. Um, and I think uh, I think Rabakina will win the US Open. Very good. Um, yeah, I did consider one of the more obvious choices, but where's the fun in that? And it's a WTA. <laughs> you, you, you never know who's going to win the tournament in the WTA. That's, that's the true. Best, that's true. The best thing yeah. about it. Um, that is all we've got time for. Thank you very much to George Belshaw and Calvin Besson for joining me as always. Thank you to you for joining us. George has got any other business. How did I, well, I not think... even ask him? Well, we've got to congratulate our fantasy tennis winner, James. What do you think? Uh, that very is very rude. Very Not true. They've so... already been celebrating on Twitter without us needing to congratulate them. But um, yeah, shout out to Mr. Freeze Tennis, who held off Dave's team by five points. Could not have been closer. Um, Djokovic, Sinner, Bublik, Lehechka, Goffin, Rybakina, Jabor, Keys, Contivate, and of course, Svitolina. George, you were, as always, an embarrassment. Um, it was bad. White wine Fritzer back in 161st. Yeah, uh, I, just that Svitolina decision. I absolutely lost my head not picking her. Yeah, you did. That would have, that would have made me top 40, probably. Yeah, and uh, Raducal Albot. I didn't pick any of the winners, but I did pick uh, Sebastian Corder, who picked me up a load of points, and uh, Alina Svitolina, which is pretty much the absolute make or break decision of the tournament. Um, there you go. Congratulations, Mr. Freeze. Thanks for playing. We'll be back for the US Open, of course. Um, keep the same team name. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? And then we can track your progress through the year. Um, but otherwise, please do come back next week. Sports Social Podcast Network.